This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and I will be reading from the ESV. And it reads, He went out again besides the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at his table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, For there were many who followed him, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that, he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Are you ready to study your Bibles, family? Okay. I don't understand how we do the same thing every week. You ready to study your Bibles, family? Yeah. All right, then I hope you keep your Bibles open as we continue studying the gospel according to Mark. Chapter 1 of this book contains in its pages some really profound Jesus moments. The, The main idea being conveyed, the kingly authority of Jesus Christ. It begins with Jesus's baptism, the inauguration of his ministry in a beautiful power and display of Trinitarian complexity. It's just a marvelous scene. And and it was really establishing his kingdom entrance. It's, It's beginning reign here on earth. And we then see Jesus calling some men to himself. He calls these four fishermen to drop their nets and the success of their work and to follow this rabbi that they barely even know to come do life and ministry together. They have no idea what they're getting themselves involved with. And then Jesus moves to Capernaum and sort of makes that his new hometown and and develops quickly a, a, a reputation by putting on display his authority over the natural and the supernatural. He teaches in the synagogue. He casts out demons out of a man. He's, he's just heal, he's doing healings. It's a, a marvelous scene and worthy of bringing attention. And, and, but after leaving Capernaum to preach this message of repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, we now have Jesus returning back to Capernaum to teach and preach some more. And the opening of chapter two begins with this incredible question, who has the authority to forgive sins? Who has the authority to forgive sins? This question comes from the mouths of the Pharisees who were the theologically clever, the intellectually stimulated, and and the the representation really of the religious elite. They challenged Jesus' authority with this question. Who is he that he can forgive sins? They challenged the authority of Jesus with this question. This controversy is not unfamiliar to us reading this story thus far. It's not. There's many a time where Jesus is either this or that. He's either made it through the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness without sin or he didn't. He either has the authority to preach and to heal or he doesn't. 
He either has the authority to touch and heal the unclean leper without being unclean himself, or he doesn't. And so this question of who has authority, who is he to have authority to forgive sins, it's either he's a forgiver of sins or a blasphemer. This doesn't come with much surprise. But that moment really does set up for us just about every moment that's going to follow in Mark's gospel. Jesus tells the Pharisees in a different manner of speaking, who has the power? Who has the authority? I do. And he gives evidence of the authoritative power to forgive sins by healing the same man of his paralysis. The ministry of our king is a ministry of reconciling the sinner to the Savior. This is where our portion of scripture this morning takes place. Jesus's encounter of Levi, or you may know him as Matthew, the tax collector and the Pharisee, is an important moment. And one, as I said, will continue to set up the rest of the pages of this gospel. Jesus continues, don't miss this, Jesus continues to challenge what is normative for the people around him by declaring what he came to do and then doing it. People just don't know what to do with that. They are marveled by this rabbi saying what he is saying and doing what he is doing. Jesus is really becoming a problem for people who like their regular, normative, everyday society that they've constructed around themselves to serve themselves. And the Pharisees keep hanging around Jesus to see if he'll slip up. To see if he'll prove himself false. To see that if this movement that he's bringing in, this radical way of living that doesn't really fit into any of their little neatly tied categories, proves to be problematic. So our time together is under the title, Good King, Bad Company. And I submit to you, family, this question for you to consider now and for the rest of our time together. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? So would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning? Would you pray? God, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, settle our hearts and minds On your word this morning. Would you, oh God, tune our expectations this morning? If we came here thinking, believing that we were going to hear something other than the ancient precious gift of God, Lord, would you settle us? Let us now, let us not be bored with your word this morning, but instead grant us the wonder of being captivated. Would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? And would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought in Christ Jesus' name? Amen. It does not matter when you were born. You most likely remember or have heard of the story of the 1992 USA men's basketball team known as the Dream Team. It's a story that, I mean, honestly transcends sports fandom. 
It was a global talking point, and even to this day is a cultural staple in American culture. And if you don't know, you're like, Justin, I, I don't know what you're talking about. This was the first American Olympic team to feature professional athletes and is widely considered the greatest sports team ever constructed. Here's, here's what I mean. If you and I, and let's say you know nothing of basketball and basketball players, but if you and I were in charge of creating the greatest basketball team that ever lived and you were simply handed a stat sheet, you would highlight the top 10 names, top 11 names, and this is that team. If you just received a paper of a list order of the greatest players to ever exist in the world, and you just highlighted the first 11 names, that's what happened, okay? These were the best basketball players on the planet, and they proved it. They proved it. They were the cream of the crop, the easiest picks to make in literally a world full of choices. Again, if you knew nothing of the sport, names like Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, and Magic Johnson, you, you are like, I've heard that before. Yeah. There are no brainers to pick from. I say that because our passage this morning finds, has Jesus uh, among some unsavory folks. The kind of people that if you and I were picking a, 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 a group of people to live every waking day of our lives for three years, we would not pick any of these people. If it was you have to pick one person from this group to spend the next three years of your life, not just Sunday, you got to live together with this person, work together with this person, eat with this person, travel with this person all of your life with this person for the next three years, you and I are not picking the tax collector. But this, especially if we wanted to keep up appearances in front of people, important. But this is the wonderful thing about Jesus, church. He constantly challenges the normative standard of the people surrounding him. Jesus establishing his kingdom here on earth is not picking the neatly dressed. He's not picking the well-spoken. He's not picking the conservative nor the majority cultured crop. And this is good news for us. That Jesus isn't picking the obvious picks. He's picking Levi. The tax collector. Tax collectors... If you're looking at this story as a normal narrative, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, tax collectors are the bad guys, 100% the bad guys. They, even among the people of Jesus' day, they were despised. More than lepers. Here's the thing. Nobody hated lepers. Nobody. You remember back a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus cleansing the leper, it wasn't a matter of hate. Between the lepers, the public had a fearfulness of its supposed contagiousness and they shamed them for the religious weight that came with it. But nobody hated the leper. They absolutely hated the tax collector. And here's why. The Romans instituted two kinds of taxes. The first is stated taxes. 
Okay, the, there was understated taxes. There's a number of kinds of taxes here. Number one was a poll tax, right? All the men ages 14 through 65 and women ages 12 through 65 simply had to pay, pay a tax for existing. Okay, you live, you breathe, tax. Then there was a ground tax, which was one-tenth of all grain, one-fifth of all wine and oil produced. And in some places, the Romans also exacted a tax on fish. Now, in Capernaum, if you remember, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Capernaum, on the Sea of Galilee, this is a fishing town. That is their gig. That's what they got, Romans instituting a tax on fish. Some of y'all are engineers. Imagine being taxed for being an engineer. It's like, that's how I eat. Um, sure. Finally, there was an income tax, which was 1% of one's annual income. In these stated taxes, there was no room for extortion. Now, you could hear it, right? It's no room for extortion. It is what it is. You got to pay your taxes. But then there was a second area of taxes called duties taxes. Uh, this had more than enough opportunity for abuse. And I want you to hear me very clearly. It was the standard for tax collectors to abuse this. You probably want to give the benefit of the doubt because some of y'all are really sweet and kind souls. And you're probably like, Levi wasn't that bad. No, 100% tax collectors took advantage of this. And this is how they made their living. Levi's not a sweet guy. He's going to rob you. That's his job. That's what he wants to do. That's how he's going to feed his family. Okay? So don't give Levi the benefit of the doubt. Here's where duties tax really gets nasty. Uh, there's a tax for using roads and docking and harbors. Uh, sales tax on some certain items. Sales tax on imports and exports. A tax was even paid on a cart. Here's the thing. One cart. You're like, all right, yeah, sure. No, no, no. They would pay taxes on every wheel of the cart. So you would roll up and they would be like, mm, four wheels. That's 10, 20, 30, 40, 40, 40. Give it to me. And you're like kicking the wheel off. And you're like, can I get 30? But he, here's, here's the issue. The system of duties gave tax collectors all the power to collect taxes in the way that they wanted. Imagine walking down the road. You are walking down a road. Not me, you. You are walking down a road and you have a tax collector coming the opposite way, okay? You are automatically fearful. And you're like, no, no, he's a good guy. Okay, let me tell you why you're fearful. This guy has the authority to say, empty your pockets. I'm gonna tax you on everything that's in there. Empty your bag. I'm going to tax you for everything that's in there. And if you don't have money to pay me now, you could take a personal loan out with me, legally binding personal loan with me, and you just got to pay that back with whatever interest I feel like giving you at the moment. Their word was final. You couldn't say, I'll see you in court. They are the court. There was no disagreeing. This was a systemic injustice. You could not do anything about this. So you can see why these dudes were the worst and why Jewish tax collectors were easily the most hated men 
in Hebrew society. Your own race, your own people, chalking it up with the Romans to tax you. You feel some sort of way about that. As one commentator put it, they were political traitors. They were thieves known for their shadiness. They had also been, here's how bad it was. They were excommunicated from the synagogues. They weren't even allowed to participate in anything court related. And yet their word was legally binding. Now imagine Jesus, the miracle man, the rabbi, the man you admire, befriending, eating, hanging out with the man who just extorted you, stole from you, took food off your children's plate, and made you legally indebted to him. Don't you feel that right now? Don't you feel it cognitively? Cognitively, you know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he can forgive sins. And yet this scene makes you feel a little gross. There is a universal problem that escapes no one. I myself have this problem. That is an admission, a confession to you that I myself am lumped in with everything I'm about to say. This problem doesn't respect persons. It doesn't respect whether you're rich or poor, whether you're conservative or a liberal. It doesn't respect whether you're theologically robust or theologically ignorant. It doesn't respect whether you're mature in your age or four years old, whether you're married or single, whether you're a parent of children or a parent of fur babies this thing exists in all of us and it's self-righteousness for some of you it creeped up right now self-righteousness exists in many forms and the danger is we've created ways to excuse it You may drive through a lower income community where the grass isn't as green as your grass or the streets aren't as clean as yours, where the people don't look as neatly as tight and clean as you. And you would think to yourself, I couldn't live here or I don't know how they could live here or the worst. God help the people who live here. Self-righteousness. It may look like you talking to someone about theology and and they say something that is certainly a little in disagreement with you, maybe a lot in disagreement with you, and you go to yourself and maybe think or behave in such a way that says, ah, they're probably not as theologically savvy as I am because they don't hold to my secondary and tertiary position, self-righteousness. In parenting, it looks like many ways, I'm just going to give one example, when you tell your children, when I was your age, I wouldn't have done that, which is essentially saying, you are not as holy as I was when I was your age. It could look like mockery. It could look like bullying. Self-righteousness doesn't care who you are. It doesn't doesn't care what you've accomplished. It doesn't care what your ethnic background is. Self-righteousness exists in all of us and family. As you contemplate this text, could I lay before you the question again, who do you think you are? 
Levi was the worst. Levi was the worst. He was all that I just said of tax collectors committed all the same crimes. And yet we find Jesus calling Levi to be a disciple. Family, may I suggest to you that you need no other argument, no other example for the power of the grace of God, for Jesus calling on the hated the thieving, the extortionist, the tax collector to himself. You need no other testimony to testify to the goodness of God's grace than Levi. And can I just say that if you believe the point in calling Levi is so that you can see, well, Jesus calls people worse off than me, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. You are Levi. We are all Levi. Do not mistakenly believe that somehow you are better than him. Do not believe that this text suggests that someone worse than you can get into the kingdom of heaven. Church, we are all in need of the authoritative power of Jesus to forgive us of our sins as he calls us to himself. That On your worst day, Jesus still calls you. That on your worst crime, grace still gets you. That when the world turns its nose up at you, God still shines his face upon you. That just as astounding it is that God would give grace to Levi, it's just as astounding that God would call any one of us here this morning. It is a miracle And nothing in Levi's life screams spiritual interest. He was building a kingdom of his own self with his own riches. And yet Jesus say comes and get this. He does. He does. Church is this not your story. That God in his scandalous grace called you to himself and you came. I'm preaching today. I feel it now. I don't know. I don't know, but I can testify to the grace of God. It's only on the other side of this sanctification that you truly get to see where you would have been if it had not been for God's grace. If it had not been for grace, Moses would have been a baby lost in the Nile. If it had not been for grace, Joseph would have been dead. Joshua forgotten. Samson weak. Ruth a grieving widow. David, I don't even got time to list it. Solomon a schemer. Job helpless Jonah a coward Jeremiah a crybaby Daniel lion's food Hosea divorced Habakkuk endlessly depressed John the Baptist an outcast Peter a liar and Levi a hated tax collector if it had not been for the grace of God you would not be here this morning I love Levi's response to Jesus Come to my house. Come to my house. Verse 15. And as he reclined at table 
in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Levi doesn't only want to be saved. He doesn't only want to be near Jesus. He wants Jesus to be in his space. He wants Jesus for everyone around him. He wants Jesus for his friends. He, he holds this little party, this little get-together and of, of other tax collectors, no doubt. So it's Jesus, his disciples, and all the tax collectors and family. Jesus is no killjoy. Jesus is down with the shindig. He's eating. He's reclining. My man is comfortable. He is in the presence of the most hated people in the city, and Jesus is living. He's eating, reclining. It's not like Levi duped him into being there. Jesus knew, and Jesus was willing to be in this room. And who else was there too? His disciples. Oh, church. As Jesus challenges the cultural normativity of the time, he calls you to do it too. He calls you to do it too. Jesus is there, not by himself, but with his disciples. In Christ, family, you are for the marginalized. In Christ, you are for the outsiders. In Christ, you are for the hated. Because if Christ was for you, Christ is for them. I wish someone loved Jesus this morning, that if Jesus could save Levi, he could save you. And if Jesus could save the tax collectors, he could save the wretched of most wretched people. It wasn't just Jesus. His disciples were there and Levi and his tax collectors, buddies. It wasn't just them. The scribes were also there. Now, these were the biggest legalists. They added to God's word by creating their own traditions and comments on scripture. These guys were the worst kind of, theological, of theology police not unlike the trolls you've probably seen online, but these dudes have been following Jesus since he taught at the synagogues because they did not like what Jesus was about. They thought of him as a blasphemer, which is punishable by stoning. But Jesus is unbothered by his constant watch of them. They're watching him constantly. But here, they see the company Jesus is in front of. They see him eating with these tax collectors. They see him reclining with them, and they're friendly with each other. And they ask one of Jesus' disciples, they kind of pull him aside, and they're like, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You want to talk about self-righteous? There's no more an arrogant question than this. Because if you're asking, why does he eat with sinners? It's because you already determined that you are not one. You see the self-deceit? It's not unlike our own. It's not unlike our own. We see this most plainly in comparative statements. You know, the ones that are like, I know I got my own things I need to worry about, but that. Or the, I know my kids misbehave, but them. Comments like this, thinking like this, dehumanizes, belittles, condemns, shames. It doesn't minister. It doesn't disciple. It doesn't love. 
It doesn't surrender self. It's actually worse than what the scribes are doing here. The scribes asking, why does he eat with sinners? Which means that they believe they've done nothing to warrant such a pronouncement over themselves, which is a lie. Scriptures say no one is righteous. No, not even one. It even says in the Old Testament, because I was written after them, it even says written in the Old Testament, all your good deeds like filthy rags. But when we make comparative statements, like I know about me, but what about them? What we're doing is we're masking our self-righteousness with faux humility. That's deceit. That's manipulation. That's an attempt to justify your sin, to see past your own sin. Family, we need grace. We need the grace of God. We need his forgiveness just as the scribes do. If I've already made the case that you're Levi in the story, can I also say you're the scribes? You're the scribes. I was talking with one of the elders and he read the text and he goes to me, the only thing I can think of is who do you think you are and why do you think it's Jesus? It's true. Verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Family, who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? For who was the manna which fell from heaven for? For who does the water from the well go to? The sinner, the hungry, the thirsty. Jesus answers the scribes with an obvious illustration. Only the sick need a doctor. And I'm with the sick right now. There are only two types of people in Levi's house right now. Sinners and Jesus. And Jesus is meeting with the sick, tending to their sin, and inviting them to a kingdom unlike Rome. Where the only debt that gets paid is the one that he's going to pay for. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that if Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost family. Is this your posture? That there is no sinner greater than me. Jesus came to save all of us. And as a church body here, this is like we're seeking, we're striving to live in community, to be connected to each other. But oh, how self-righteousness kills this ministry. Self-righteousness doesn't allow you to see the sinner as yourself and worse yet as needing of Christ. The Pharisees questioned why Christ was with the tax collectors. They were unable because of their own self-righteousness to see the sinner's need for his attention. To see their own need as much as theirs. Family, self-righteousness in your heart will make you unable to give grace to your neighbor and see your neighbor as yourself. 
Self-righteousness will crush your ability to celebrate the grace, goodness, and glory of God. Truly, self-righteousness will make you distracted and not connected. I'll ask the Holy Spirit this morning to examine the depths of your heart and to bring to surface your need for grace and forgiveness. Because at the right time, Christ will die for the unrighteous. Not the righteous, because there is only one who is, and he's going to freely give his life to Roman state-sanctioned murder for those who repent and believe. Church, I ask you this morning to see Christ for Levi as Christ for you, and I urge you even more to see Christ for the Pharisee as Christ is for you. Confess your unrighteousness. See yourself as the sick needing a doctor. And would you stand with me to eat with Jesus?